Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Okay, I am here with Adam from the UK True Crime Podcast. Thank you. You're coming all the way from the continent, right? You're coming from Spain? Yep, so I've lived in um, Spain for six weeks, sure, and thank you for having me, by the way. So <laughs> nothing works in the house. You just see me trying to do my blind at the back. Um, but yeah, it's good to be talking to you today. Yeah, we both had, I mean, we're both experts in the field, but we're, we're still <laughs> absolutely useless when it comes to setting up. We can't even set up a Zoom call between us for the life of us. We've got there in the end. We have got there. But let's talk about you, because as much as people might think that British Murders is one of the good UK podcasts in the UK, hopefully. The UK True Crime Podcast is like the original gangster OG True Crime Podcast, right? So just tell me, your first episode, and I got it up here, dropped in November 2016, and I believe it's the Babysitter Murders or the Babysitter Killer. Just talk to me about how you got into this journey. So I used to work for a really big pharmaceutical company and they're really old school. I'm in favor of working from home all the time. Okay. That's what I like to do, but they were in favor of sending you off on a plane all week. And then you'd come back on a Friday, absolutely shattered flying back from one of the four corners of the world. And you know, when you get to that stage, you're so tired, you can't be bothered to read, you can't be bothered to listen to music. You certainly can't be bothered to work. And a friend of mine, a colleague of mine was into podcasts. Um, I'd never really heard of them. So I listened to a few. I listened to some uh, Leeds United podcasts, which were great. But I've also liked true crime all my life. And I tried to find true crime. There were quite a few US ones. But the only UK one I could find at the time was the excellent They Walk Among Us by Ben and Rosie still going. You know, it's a fantastic show. But I thought, you know, I, I want more. I want more. And if I want more, so other people want more too. So I thought, I know, let's let's go for it. So I'm sure you remember what it's like when you wrote your first podcast. I wrote my script. I thought, here we go, ready to go. Did all my research online and I was ready to record. So I sat down and I think it lasted uh, 10 minutes and 37 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I know length isn't everything, shit, but um, yeah, that was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> it's funny though, isn't it? Because you've got all these grandiose plans, but then once you press record, it's like, Squeaky bum time is the expression, isn't it? Yeah, I found it that. Even though you're recording on your own. How did you approach it with a style? Because nowadays your format is quite set, right? So you typically start and you've got your guest of the year little competition, which is cool as yeah. an icebreaker. And then you've got the story and the length is pretty set as well. Did you have an idea of how you were going to format it going in at the start of you evolved over time? Yeah, I, I did. So so I, I think we're all, t- we're all time poor, aren't we? All of us are time poor at the moment. The average commute, I think at the time I read, was about 25 minutes. And I've got to be realistic about the time I can afford. You know, I've got, I've got young children. <clears throat> I've got a busy, busy day job as well. Uh, and I've got lots of other stuff going on in my life that keeps me busy. So what can I actually commit to? I remember thinking at the time that I can keep a set format. Because what our listeners want, I think, is they want consistency. They want to know that you're going to be producing your show every week. And... You know, it's not like Kings of Leon. It's not that dull and boring and repetitive. 
but it's got to be along the same sort of lines. And so 25 minutes is what I aim for. But even now, some weeks it's really embarrassing. Some weeks I get to the end and I'm on like 22 minutes and three seconds. But then what do you do? You can either waffle, can't you? We can all waffle and talk a load of garbage and just words or just accept that some weeks that's where the story ends. Yeah, I've definitely been there. In my, I reckon in the, the middle of my, I'm on season, just finished season 11. Season three-ish was where you start, when you get a bit of an audience going and you start thinking, 20 minutes isn't good enough. I need, I need some filler. But then you just start putting needless stuff in, don't you? So you, you're on, let's have a look here, 367 episodes. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? And you've been going for... Seven years now. My maths is uh, fantastic. <laughs> Seven years. So I, I missed a few. I missed one with COVID. I missed one a few weeks ago. I was traveling to Spain. I was traveling to Spain with my two dogs, like two, two nutty Dalmatians. And everything went wrong and the laptops go wrong. We were moving from place to place, you know, just on the road. So I missed it then. But I think except for those two weeks, I don't think I've missed um, an episode since 2016 and I've moved house I think my listeners joke about me moving house all the time but I've moved house about four times my my mum and my sister have died during that time and one of our dogs has died during that time so despite all these big life issues that have happened I've kept it going because it's what you just said at the beginning really you know when you sit down every week to record your episode and I still feel nervous now and I suddenly sometimes think as I'm recording I think who the hell is going to listen to this you know have I Am I being interesting? Because while we've got to tell a story, of course, we've also got to be interesting, haven't we? Because our, our audience, it's that fine line in true crime, isn't it, between entertainment and telling a story. So it's always that, that fine line. But my, my listeners, they, they expect to hear my podcasts every Tuesday. I, I do. There's some podcasts I listen to, okay? So there's a Leeds United one called The Square Ball. Every Monday when I walk the dogs, they do their review of the weekend's game. It's my must-listen to. And there's one I used to listen to a lot. It was a political one with um, Ian Dan and Jackie Smith, the ex-home secretary, um, for the many. They used to release without fail every Sunday. And I'd listen to it, walking the dogs every Sunday morning. But then they shifted and they started recording on Friday. And for some reason, th- that just did it for me. I wasn't interested anymore. And there's plenty more, as we know, same as crime podcasts. There's a ton of podcasts I listen to. So I think that consistency is absolutely the most important thing. It's important to get a, when your listeners have a routine as well, like you say, yeah. if, if their go-to on that day is to put you on in the morning, it gets them through that day to change that. This is why even if, and I'd like to ask you about, you've talked about life events there and that can affect producing. I think people might forget that we're just normal people at the end of the day as well. But because you're so engaged with your audience, I mean, on Facebook, mate, you've got like 90 odd thousand people in your group. I'm not saying you know all of them by name, but you've got a massive audience there. And I think part of your popularity is because of your audience interaction. How important is that? I think it's the most important thing. Um, Of course, we'd never denigrate any other podcast host, anyone that does creating. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's great work. But some of these podcast hosts that maybe don't interact with their audience, I don't quite get it. I mean, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, I'm sure you've heard of him. Your listeners have heard of him. You know, he's a really good guy. I, I like listening to him, especially when I'm having a downtime. I find him, he really gets me up and going again. And he says, almost like, who the hell are you? These people spend their time listening and making an effort to talk to you. And you can't be bothered to reply to every single person that does that, that takes the time out of their day to do it. There's no excuses and I've been the same from day one. And I think of you and I think of the other podcast hosts I know well, like you know, Bethan and Mark, Paul, Mike, and all those guys. They all really stay very, very close to their audience because in time, and it's like the live events, isn't it? I know you've been at CrimeCon the last two years. I've been there before and done some other live events. And then these people that are on your Facebook group and that listen to your show and that email you, you start meeting them face-to-face. You maybe have a beer or a coffee with them. Yeah, and generally, quite a few of them have become friends. And then it's like the other podcast hosts, isn't it? When I first started, I thought, I remember the, they walk among us there. And I joked with Ben and Rosie a couple of years ago about it. The first thing I did when I started my podcast, I blocked them on Twitter and Instagram. 
because I don't know, I just thought we were in competition or something utterly ridiculous. But it couldn't be further from the truth. And when people sometimes ask me about starting a podcast, I just say that you're not in competition with anyone. There's people that don't like my show, okay? I get slated sometimes. I'm sure you do. We all do. But that's fine. My show isn't aimed at everybody. If you think about Mike at Murder Mile, for example, he does maybe hour-long shows with the most in-depth research about older cases, absolutely incredible stuff. But that's not what I'm trying to do. Not that I could do it if I wanted to, but it's just not what I'm trying to do. So I think there's something for everyone, Stuart. And, you know, if people don't like your show, that's fine, isn't it? I'm okay with that. You know, it's, it's no problem. That's fine. There's plenty out there. Go listen to something else. That's the important thing. A lot of people, rather than just switching over, which is what we would prefer someone, because if the show's not for you, it's not for you. It might not be your desired length. You might not get on with the narrator's voice. You might not like the structure. That's fine. Just don't, don't listen to it. That speaks much louder than leaving a shitty review that calls you a prick, which oh, just but, achieves nothing. Oh, but it's <laughs> yeah. a rite of passage, isn't it? Remember when you start? I remember when, when I started. Your first one. Yeah, I got all my all my family and friends to write nice reviews. I remember at Christmas, I was there taking their iPhones <laughs> and writing the reviews for them. And then the first horrible one comes and you take it really, whatever you say, you take it really personally at first, don't you? But now I, I barely read reviews. I try not to look at charts, those sorts of things. If you've seen you've dropped 10 places in the charts or something and you're about to start writing another episode when you've got lots of life stuff going on as well, it can be quite demoralizing. But nowadays when I see the bad reviews, I had a fantastic one. I've had a few recently actually. Um, I'd rather listen to two cats fighting outside um, in an alleyway, all this sort of stuff. But now now I can laugh at it more because you've got some perspective. Because all these creators of podcasts or music or books or whatever else they do, or even if you see people who are maybe terribly out of shape and they you see them jogging in the morning, you know, the people that write bad reviews are the sort of people that laugh at those people. You know, that's not my mentality. It's not how I look at life. I think they're good for you. Fantastic. Going out there, getting stuff done. And the same with creating, isn't it? And it might not be for me. Like a lot of these podcasts aren't for me. I don't listen to, but you know, well done for doing it and actually trying to make a difference. Well, that's it. And the content is free, of course. Yeah. Now, yeah, you might have to listen to the, the odd advert. But there's ways around that. You could subscribe to someone's membership if you wanted to do that, if you were so inclined. But free content every week for seven years is pretty good going. Do you know what I mean? So if, if someone <laughs> if, if someone slags you off because of your voice or for whatever, then just it's a case of looking in the mirror, I think. I'm interested to find out how you get through creative slumps because sometimes when I'm writing, I don't know if... If I get ahead, I might have a couple of weeks where I've not been doing writing, so maybe I get out of the swing of things. How do you overcome periods where you you either think, you maybe you get imposter syndrome and you think, why am I doing this? I'm no yeah. good. Or you might just think, I cannot be bothered to do this right now. How do you get through that? I get it. I get it all the time. I get it really regularly. Um, so... Last week, I was behind on my patron episodes. So I do a bonus episode. You do as well for your patron supporters. And it's probably one of the most important things I do because these are the supporters that really do support my show. And yet I hadn't done a patron episode. I hadn't actually sat down and written one. And I thought, what am I doing? All this talk I've just given you at the moment about our, our listeners being so important to us. And yet I hadn't been bothered to actually write that patron show. I, I really sort of, sometimes you have to give yourself a bit of a, a bit of a slap, don't you? And say, come on, what are you doing? Start thinking about it. So that's when I go and listen to something like Gary Vaynerchuk all over again and just really get motivated about what I'm trying to achieve. What am I trying to achieve? What are you, let me turn around. What, what are you trying to achieve? What, what is your aim for your podcast, Stuart? Have, have you given that much thought over the last six months or so? I have. I The way my show's evolved is all my episodes are listener-suggested, which further builds that cust customer. God, I'm talking like I'm at work. <laughs> Audience engagement. Yeah. Customer engagement. Jesus Christ. What I enjoy covering is lesser-known cases. Yeah. So sometimes if, and, and this is, it comes across quite bad possibly, but if I'm about to cover a case and I search for that case and I can see there's 10 podcasts covering that already, Mm -hmm. I'll probably put that on the back burner a little bit 
because it doesn't need more exposure right now. Yeah. If there's something that doesn't have coverage, that is more interesting to me because that person's story needs telling. So I, I'm enjoying telling the lesser known stories, really. I think that's my motivation at the moment. Okay, that's interesting because I think I, I tend to do the same. And sometimes when I see the big cases being covered again, I, I almost roll my eyes and think, what can you add? And people ask to me, for example, say, can you cover, I don't know, pick, pick a major case? I kind of say no, because I just can't add anything. I don't think in, in 25 minutes, if I cover... Um, Peter Sutcliffe, for example, in one 25-minute episode, of which actual episode is probably about 17, 18 minutes. It's I'm just I'm, all I'm doing is I'm just just reproducing stuff. All my listeners can just go and look on look online in 10 minutes to do. So <laughs> to go back to your original question, when I'm in a, a slump, I just need to sort myself out a bit sometimes. You know, sometimes in life, isn't it? It's about getting too deep about it all. You know, we get a lot of stuff going on. It's about actually working out what's important, what you need to spend the time to prioritise. So, for example, tonight, the Mighty League United are playing Sunderland at 8 o'clock. I know that I will make two hours to sit, have a beer, and watch the Leeds match. So the things that I really want to do, I can always make time for. And that's how it is with your podcast. When you go for those stages, when it's, when it's bad, I think you listen to a bit of motivational stuff, and then just force yourself to sit down, stick some music on, and I almost take the pressure off. And rather than think, I've got to write a case... I go and look through, just do a search. And like I used to do when I first started, murder Grimsby, or I look at um, drug trafficking South Coast. And you know what it's like? You start going down all these rabbit holes, don't you? You start looking at all these cases that are really, really interesting. And then you think that case might be good. You start reading about it. And then another case sort of comes up from that, doesn't it? You think, wow, that's amazing. Have I not heard of that case? It's an incredible story. And then it gets my enthusiasm going again. And then to actually start writing, I have to be listening to loud music. I don't know about you. I can't listen. I can't be sitting in silence. Yeah. Do you? When I'm writing, I always have something on out. Strangely, I have, uh, <laughs> I listen to like, there's a playlist on Spotify called Classical Bangers. Oh yeah. And, it, and it's all, you know, it's Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. And it's, I just, I like piano calming music. I'd never listened to it for enjoyment i guess although i appreciate the talent but when i'm writing it it helps me shut out it's like white noise to me it helps me shut out the world and just lets me focus on writing it's because i can't just have nothing because all the senses will be going off you know but if i have piano music or just calm writing music it doesn't have to be one of the big composers from from back in the day what do you listen to well, obviously, Slipknot's my number one. Um, but after Slipknot, uh, not really. Uh, so what do I listen to? I listen to all loads of stuff. I listen to loads of Bowie and Prince for my youth, all that sort of stuff. The last couple of weeks since Shane McGowan started up, I'm listening to all my old Pogue stuff again, um, which is just amazing. But I just need something loud. I always have my headphones on. I need to be sitting at my desk to actually write properly. I can sit on the sofa with my dogs and half write, half do stuff. But before I know it, I'm scrolling on Facebook. Even worse, I'm on dailymail.com. Sorry, sorry, everyone. But yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't really find But if I'm sitting at my desk with my music on, I can actually get on down and do it. And, and it's amazing what you can actually achieve, can't you, in like three solid hours sitting at your desk writing. You can really sort of start to make the case um, for your next story. Do you research it first and then convert it to a script or do you write as you research? Honestly, it depends how much time I've got free. If I've, if I've got having a really good week, I'll maybe start writing on the Wednesday, start some research and then start pulling it together later. There are some weeks where maybe on a Monday I haven't had time or in my mind I haven't had time to start a case and then I might start pulling it together as I go. But if ever you see I do a, a more well-known case, that's one of those weeks. Because well-known cases, I think they're much easier to do because there's so much stuff, isn't it? It's all about what you leave out. But when I'm doing one of the cases I really enjoy doing, one of the lesser-known cases, then you have to do the research first. And even for my show, a 25-minute show, I can sometimes be doing 10, 12 hours of research, before, or even more sometimes, not too much more, maybe 14, 15 hours max for me, I guess before I do a show but that's a lot of time for one 25 minute show 
And I also try and avoid two and three parters only because I don't like them when other people do them. It's like cold cases. Well, cold cases is something quite different. A lot of people cover cold cases incredibly well. Some just do a terrible job, but we won't go there. But my worry about cold cases is by the nature of what we do, you're speculating, aren't you? You're speculating what might have happened. And unless I've been in contact with the family of the victim first, I feel quite uncomfortable doing that, speculating. I sometimes do it for Patreon episodes because with those Patreon supporters, I feel almost, you know, it's it's almost a safer place to have it's those. Restricted, isn't it? If you do it, yeah, there. yeah, I get but that. Y- y- like like me, you've had people from people from families of cases you've covered contact you. Most of them are nice contacts, and it's it's really good to hear from them that they think you've covered it well. But I, I've had one or two over the years who've said, "How dare you cover this this case?" And I get that, and it's back to something we discussed at the very beginning. I think that fine line between and true crime for entertainment and true crime for telling the story of a victim. Although we try always, it's about the victims. You know, I've listened to your podcast and most, especially the UK ones, we're very good at that, I think. But there is still that entertainment sometimes. So I'm really careful, even in some of my titles. So sometimes I see titles, if I go and look at some of the, the way the tabloids have covered some of these stories, it's like um, headless corpse found in sex orgy, something like that. And then I'll call it instead, if I'm doing the same story, I'll call it something like the radiator. Just something yeah. dull to take that, you know, that tabloidy feel away from it. Because yeah, we are talking about the worst possible events that's happened in somebody's lives ever and their families. It's, it's, it's just a fine line though, isn't it? Is that something you've always had? Or is that something that as you've developed you've you've sort of grown with because I remember when I first started and if you look at my first few seasons I focused my episodes the titles the artwork everything was about the perpetrator since attending these live events like CrimeCon and meeting the families of victims and hearing them speak and talking to them it's really opened my eyes as to how kind of wrong that was so now I haven't gone back and changed my old ones because I want people to follow that journey with me the evolution, I guess, of the show. But nowadays it's all like I, I did cover Sutcliffe recently and it, it was a two-parter as well. <laughs> I'm also doing another two-parter. The reason I do two-parters, Adam, especially this time of year, if it happens to fall on this time of year is because we've got Christmas two weeks away. And if I do a special at the end of the season now, which is an hour long, I then have to write another one and do two in a week. It kind of saves me to, I don't like doing them because I know you have to wait and it's annoying, but it's better than no content. But anyway, for the Sutcliffe one, so I called it, I thought the only spin I can take on this that isn't done as often, I won't say it's never been done, but isn't done as often, is to focus purely on the 13 women that he's confirmed to have killed. So I so I called my two-parter the Forgotten 13. Okay, yeah. No, no mention of him in the title, no mention of him in the artwork or anything. He's in the description briefly, but it was focusing on the lives of those women. I did seven in the first episode, three in the second episode. So that that was my spin on that. But yeah, I get what you mean. The temptation is to be almost clickbaity, isn't it? Because people that search for a case search for the killer typically, which is they do. Just the way of the and world. Then, then there's some really strange stuff out there, isn't there? Yeah. You don't need me to tell you how strange some people are, right? Um, <laughs> but the, these people that almost um, glorify the serial killers and stuff, you know, who, who on earth has a serial killer mug? You know, there's this, I saw someone the other day selling a serial killer calendar. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. I, th- and I think that's the problem sometimes, and I try and get to with podcasts. So in my podcast, one thing I try and do a lot is almost get down to the nitty gritty. So it's very easy to say, and the life support machine was turned off and the family were devastated, something like that. But I, I try and find somebody who's affected saying where they were on the day that they heard the news. You know, somebody was sitting at home, the phone went and this terrible news and they rushed to the hospital. And then what happened? Because like the serial killer stuff, it's very easy to see serial killer as not individual people being hurt and family has been devastated. So I, I, I still now just try and get as close as I can to what, what actually happened to them on that day and what, what the effect was. Because as we know, especially from a murder, 
the ripples are felt for generations. I mean, I, I covered a, I covered Myra Hindley's brother recently. I wanted to say about the Moors murderers, but go back to my point. I thought it was pointless me covering the Moors murderers. So I covered Myra Hindley's brother who effectively gave them up to the police. And that story really hit me. The ripples now, what, 50 years on or something, that so many people have been so, and are still so affected by that. And I, I don't think you've covered any stories in Northern Ireland yet. I've, I've covered a, f- a few. And I'm always very aware when I cover that, whenever I cover a story in Northern Ireland, I always get people telling me that I'm biased one way or the other, which is fine. But what I can never understand, because I didn't live through those times or those years ago, is the depth of feeling and what these people actually live through. So I, so I, I really try and get to that nitty gritty day to day, real people, what they were feeling and what they were living. Yeah, Northern Ireland scares me. Have you, have you listened to The Troubles by Ocean? I've not listened to it. I've heard of it. I just haven't got around to listening to it. Yet. Yeah, so it's, 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 fun. it's probably the best I've heard. It's the sort of podcast I'd like to do every time I do a story in Northern Ireland. But I'm always drawn back to Northern Ireland because the human stories of what happened there are just, um, well, it's, it's, it's horrific, but fascinating at the same time. Yeah. I did get a question, actually, because I told my Patreon members that uh, oh, yeah. I was, I was going to be speaking to you and I was trying to get, I did have it, but I think I've lost it. I think it was Andy, Andy Barker or Andy Baker. Forgive me, Andy. I, I did have it in front of me, but I don't. Andy Barker. He, said, he, he wants me to ask you uh, about the Rochdale saunas. <laughs> oh dear. Again, and that's another of these fine lines, isn't it? Like, We've all got our in jokes, haven't we? I mean, my hatred of the Kings of Leon, because <laughs> they're so boring, uh, comes up all the time. And things like the Rochdale saunas. So I covered a case, I, I should know, it's about episode 115 or something. And this was an I was going for my bad stage. I actually called it, ignore everything I just told you about being sensitive. I called it more and more sex. Okay. <laughs> to see what response I got. And guess what? It got loads more listeners than any other. Okay, that's the side. So it's, it's a horrible story about um, a woman, a man, um, and then he was controlling coercive and he, um, he forced her to have sex with other people. And one of the areas that he took her, which I found just bizarre, have you been to Rochdale before? Oh, no I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's a lovely place. Okay? I'm sure it's a lovely place for anyone listening. But um, Rochdale to me doesn't strike me as a place where you've got wild sex orgies going on all the time. But this guy took his wife to a sauna in Rochdale and forced her to have sex with a number of people. And I just found it so incongruous picturing something like Rochdale. When I've been there to watch Leeds, I think, once or twice. It's always pouring with rain and it's um, you just expect but it just shows, doesn't it? As it's a true standard crime. northern town, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, but you just don't know what goes on. It's like other people's lives. You've got no idea what goes on, have you? All these people, we, I talk a lot on my show, I'm sure you do too, about this Facebook effect. We all see these people having these fantastic lives. Coming up to Christmas, you'll see these families, when you're all dressed in the same pyjamas, absolutely perfect. <laughs> you think, oh, why isn't my life as wonderful as that? But of course, we just never know what goes on, do we, behind the four walls? No, that's exactly right. A point you touched on there before we're going to come on to your book in a moment is that episode performed better because it was more sensationalized, right? Do you think it's possible to be, I mean, you are ultra successful, but I'm talking like ultra, ultra, mega successful level. Can you be that and still have a conscience? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Some of our very successful podcasts I have struggled with in how they've behaved in certain areas. I don't know. It's really difficult, isn't it? Then, I don't know. Then you've got something like Casefile. Let's pick Casefile. They do a fantastic show. And when I listen to it, I listen to it a lot. I think their morals, values, and ethics, everything is spot on. They do things the right way. So I suppose the answer is yes. But it's possible, let's see. It is, but I don't think everybody near the top oh. of the tree follows the same level. What do you think? I, apart from the odd exception, I don't think you can have both, personally. I think I think when you start getting an audience and start getting a bit of success, I think you have to choose which path you want to follow. And it's not just true crime podcasts. The same goes for YouTube. The same goes for 
I suppose, musicians, you know? How many musicians were had a, a core fan base? I'll take Metallica. Metallica's my favourite band. Their first five albums was 80s, thrash metal. Everyone loved it. But then in 1990, I want to say, the Black Album comes out. Maybe it was 91. And that was a far more commercialised, well-produced, less gritty and raw album. Successful commercially, but you still get a diehard core of the fan base that say, I've stopped listening after the first five albums. But they've gone on to be mega successful. Then they had a bit of a shit period in the 90s, and now they're kind of back to being good again. Yeah. I just just don't think you can have both. I know that's not a moral thing. That's a, a production thing, I guess. But if you want to be true to yourself and have a bit of a conscience and do things the right way, focus on the victims, don't sensationalize the killers, don't give needless opinions and stuff or make jokes about things that you shouldn't be. That seems to perform really well, annoyingly. Whereas if if you're on the other side, you'll have a more, possibly a more respected fan base, but you won't have the success. I don't think you can have both, unless it's a rare occasion. It's it's a fine line, isn't it? It's a fine line. And it comes back down, doesn't it? To this, everything I think in true crime podcasting to me comes down to this fine line between entertainment and the fact we're dealing with the worst possible things that could ever happen to people. And people that say it's not entertainment, I just don't think it's true. It has to be entertainment. I listen and read a lot of uh, true crime ones. I'm interested. Well, that's by its nature. It entertains me, doesn't it? It's entertainment. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. It is. And if you just went on a podcast and, and read the facts of a story, no one would listen. No, you've got to personalise it, haven't you? And that, that hit me when I first started, actually. It's one of the things I think I learnt relatively quickly. You, don't, you never, of course, make stuff up, but you, you have to make it into a story, don't you? It's all about it's like life, isn't it, really? What we you know, to be successful in life, I'd suggest, is the good storytellers, whatever your business is, is is absolutely important. But I think with us, we've got to turn it into a story as well. There's one or two I've listened to that are just that. They're just facts. And it's just it's just boring. It's the sort of thing that I turn off. But hey, some people love that sort of stuff as well, isn't it? So as we said at the beginning, whatever works for you, there's, there's a market for everyone. Of course, that's it. So let's segue then into your book. So this was released in 2021 that you wrote with Chris Clark, who's been on the show before because he wrote a book with Bethan. And oh, yeah. This is called, yeah, this is called Gone Fishing, The Unsolved Crimes of Angus Sinclair. So before we go into sort of the actual crimes and the effect this has had on Beyond the Wall up there in uh, your former native Scotland, as it were, <laughs> how did this book come about and why Angus Sinclair? So... I, I met Chris through my true crime um, Facebook page. Um, he used to post a lot on there. Ex-intelligence officer clearly knows a lot about a lot of crimes. And he approached me about Angus and Claire. He said he'd been collating a lot of information over the years and he think it'd make a great book. Frankly, Stuart, I'd barely heard of Angus. I don't think I'd even heard of Angus and Claire. I'd heard of the World's End Murders, the most infamous murders of his. But I didn't know anything about him. And for about six, seven months, I sort of looked at it a little bit, didn't really spend much time on it. And then that Christmas of 2020, I guess, I just locked myself away at nine o'clock at night, every night, and just sat down and immersed myself in the story. And it's just utterly, utterly, utterly astonishing on so many levels. I mean, look at this, for example. 1981, Scotland, there was a census. And I think the census showed the population was 5,030,000 or something. And yet at that time, there were three serial killers operating in Scotland, Angus Sinclair and Peter Tobin and Robert Black. It's just amazing. I think it was at CrimeCon last year, somebody told me that the figures for serial killers and Glasgow, I think, had the biggest number of serial killers coming out of any city globally, which is just astonishing. And the Angus Sinclair story, he's one of those killers that he never showed any empathy at all. He was cold, comp- everything in compartments. We, we, we hear a lot on my podcast and yours as well, that a lot of these murderers tend to talk, then they talk to somebody. They have to talk about it. Sinclair didn't, didn't talk to anyone. He killed, he, in the end, he was sentenced to, convicted of four murders. The, the first one, he was, what was he, 16. He killed a neighbor, seven-year-old 
Catherine Rehill in the um, block that he lived. Um, it was premeditated. Now he snatched her away, attacked her, sexually assaulted her. And during that assault, somebody actually, a friend of his knocked on the door. He actually stopped, opened the door, made arrangements for that evening, and then carried on with what he was doing. And once he was finished, he just discarded her on the stairs. And then he even phoned the ambulance. But he got, what, seven years for that? Then he was out, moved to Edinburgh, and he killed, killed again and again and again. He's obsessed by sex. The next person he was convicted of killing was in 1978, Mary Gallagher. It's when DNA uh, testing came through. He wasn't convicted of that until many years later. And then the World's End murders. That was Helen Scott and Christine Eadley. So those four, he was convicted of murdering eventually. But in 1977, there were at least six other women went missing in the Glasgow area. They were all killed in the same way. He would take them from the streets late at night. He would um, bind them, gag them, um, and strangle them. And DNA allowed him to be found guilty of the Mary Gallagher and the World's End murders. But all the DNA had been lost and all the, everything had been lost for these other missing women in Glasgow during that period. At least, at least four other people. In our book, I think we suggested maybe 12 people. All these families left without answers. It was, um, it's just horrendous. And what can you do? All the, all the, all the forensic evidence was gone. Strathclyde police lost the whole, well, some would argue they didn't lose it. Some would argue it was lost on purpose because they'd made such a mess of the investigation. That's what some people would argue. I fully understand that point of view. All these families left without answers. It's, it's outrageous. And he only got done for the world's end murders, really, in the end. So I don't know if you know much about the story. So Helen Scott and Christine Eady, they're both 17. All their lives to live, they went out after both working, went out in Edinburgh, met a load of their mates, as you do, ended up in the world's end pub on the, on the, on the Royal Mile there, about 10 o'clock. A couple of their friends were off to party somewhere they got chatting to a couple of guys and um, they said no no we'll, we'll leave the party then their bodies were found what 50 miles away on the east Lothian coast the next day they'd both been gagged raped just just horrendous what must have happened to them you know helen she'd been stamped on she had a black eye she'd been you know, really nastily assaulted and luckily in that case the forensic officer thought that in years to come that they might be able to solve this with DNA. So they were meticulous in preserving the evidence. And that, in the end, is what pointed to Sinclair. So yeah, he was guilty. But even then, he wouldn't accept that he was guilty. He said it was consensual. And he tried to blame his, um, well, his, his brother-in-law, a guy called Hamilton, Gordon Hamilton, who died a few years before. He blamed him. He said, well, as far as I'm aware... And um, we had consensual sex. Then at two in the morning, Angus Sinclair went off fishing somewhere. And so Gordon Hamilton must have killed them. Yeah, utterly ludicrous. But as I said to you before we started this podcast, I'd say that I lived in Scotland for the last five years. I spoke to a lot of people in Edinburgh about it. And I think it's the world's end murders in particular is, I think it's a, a crime that has, that even now has still affected the city in the same way as maybe Peter Sutcliffe in Leeds, you know, People haven't forgotten, even though it was 1977, people haven't forgotten this. It was the most horrendous crime. And Angus Sinclair got away with so much. That's the frustration, isn't it? You know, we all expect justice, don't we? But he just got away with it. And then he died, when was it, 2019, age 73. So without the evidence and the forensic evidence there, you know, the police aren't going to go back and, and ex- re-examine all these old murders anymore. So got away with murder numerous times. So when you've locked yourself away Christmas 2020 and you're researching this and you're liaising with uh, Chris, how did you collate everything together? Was it a case of, because I know Chris, obviously the writer and he's, he's liaised with other podcasters, yourself, Bethan. Were you presenting, I'm just trying to figure out how it was written with two people, because I never understand that, how books are written with two, because I think it, I'd just be arguing with the other person. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? So, so, so 
Chris is, is so knowledgeable about so many cases. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, so he had um, almost like an outline of the chapters. I think there were 16, 17 chapters um, with, with his thoughts, some of his research, and just other ideas there. And so then I went away and I would do one chapter at a time that's picked you know, one, one part of the story. And I would write that using his research and other parts of research as well. And I'd send it to him, say, look, what are your thoughts on here? He'd give me his thoughts. I'd rewrite it and we'd go back and forth a number of times. So it was chapter by chapter. And only when the chapters were finished, we could then sort of move things around to, to fit in. It's, it's a really long process. And it's, it's, really, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. I've, I've, I'm supposed to be writing another one with him now, but I'm being incredibly, incredibly slow. Because you have to be so immersed in it because I was, I was living it every day. You know, I was waking up. And if I read an article, let's say, about a crime that happened in Kilmarnock in 1978, I'd immediately have, I'd have so much information in my head. I'd think, could we link it to X, Y, and Z? What about, you know, what about this? And so you've really got to be, I think, when you're writing, you've got to be really on top of all that detail. Otherwise, I'm sure you've read bad books, um, bad crime books, and you can see that the people, that the authors, it's just, it's, it's not written almost through love, is it? It's just, it's just writing a book. Not much care has gone into it. But with this, I was totally immersed in it because I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was really, really important. Yeah. Right, so UK True Crime Podcast, talk to me about evolution, because you've been at this almost a decade now, not to make you sound old or feel old. Yeah, thanks. For a show that's pretty much top of the leaderboard, right, as far as we go in the UK, in my opinion, how do you continually evolve? What's next as far as the podcast goes? How do you see the show going? I remember at CrimeCon a couple of years ago, I spoke to Sean Atwood. Um, I, I like his content. I like, well, I like most of his content, particularly his interviews with um, ex-criminals who've turned their lives around, that sort of thing I really, really enjoy. You know, and with his background of being you know, locked up, um, there's some really interesting stuff there. But he said, more content is always the answer. And I think he's right. So I know you do it on YouTube. I think there's loads more YouTube to do. There's more books to write. There's more articles to do. I think most of the podcasts I speak to aren't very happy with their podcast providers. I think there's, you know, how how much revenue can our normal podcaster make, our hobby podcaster, our independent podcaster? I think there's all stuff there that we need to be looking at. And live shows. There's a ton more we can do with live shows. I'm working with Mike at Murder Mile and Paul, true crime enthusiast, two of my top friends in the industry, about how we can make a show that crosses from just our our audience into a much, much wider audience. So I think there's a lot of things there, but it's it's just about putting it all together, isn't it? So I've been spending a lot of time. I joined a network earlier this year. Um, I thought it would be a good thing, would help my show evolve. But in the end, I, I wasn't happy with how it was going. So, so I left that network. But I'm not saying never again to a network. So I think that the group of us, especially in British true crime podcasts, I think there's so much more we could be doing together. And I, I also think there's lots more stuff we can be doing with families, like real families. I don't think there's anything out there. I know CrimeCon has some families involved. But I, I just wonder if we're doing, if there's not, if we're not missing something to get more high profile for, for some of these families out there at the moment. Yeah. So as you can tell, basically, I haven't got a clue. Sure, I'm just waffling away. Um, a few ideas, but it's, it's hard to think, isn't it? It's hard to think clearly about where it goes from here. But there's, there's so many options. But in the end, it comes down to back to where we started. Really, time prioritizing what's important. And what can give the most value to most people out there, I guess? It, especially because you still consider yourself an independent podcaster. Yeah. People like Sean, I've spoke to him briefly on Instagram. He's a very busy guy, I get that. I'd like to have him on at some point. He has a team behind him, I think, right? So 
he he has a studio that he can get guests in, which makes the viewing experience on YouTube better than a Zoom call, for example. He's, he'll have editors and stuff. It's, the, the concern with being an independent is spreading yourself too thin. And you, you can't be a master of all trades, can you? A jack of all trades, whatever you want to say. Master of none. That's, that's the old saying, isn't it? So like YouTube, for example, take that. Such a hard thing to break into. Now, Grace from Red Rum is smashing it on YouTube. She's had a few videos that have gone mega viral. She's got about 30,000 subs on there now. Has a really good following. But if you looked at her podcast downloads on their own, you might think that's not being as successful. So again, it comes back to, can you be good at everything? Possibly not. With YouTube, I find the part difficult of recording, editing video. It just takes so much longer. And when we're so time sensitive, it's often not worth it for a hundred views or something. So you've got quite a few viewers. You've got quite a few subscriptions, haven't you, in your YouTube? Yeah, about 3.8 thousand or something, 3.7, yeah. Okay, so I've got, I think, 561. Hmm. So <laughs> it does, the I've, thing I've, is, though, it doesn't make a difference because, and this is the, it's almost a fallacy, I suppose, of how many followers you have, therefore, should mean you're a success. But on TikTok, I've got nearly 400,000 on there. But if I put a video on, it could still only get 500 views. You'd think it'd go to everyone and everyone would watch it, wouldn't you? You'd think, I have this many subs. Therefore, I'm guaranteed this many views. I should, in theory, get three and a half thousand views on every YouTube video. It just doesn't work that way. The subscriber count is nothing more than a, a vanity thing, in my opinion. So, because there was a guy who had Peter Folding on recently for an interview that went quite viral. And this was, I mean, it, it labeled it right. It basically said, I found Nicola Bully. So it's an enticing headline. And Peter so, Folding, Peter, Peter, Peter Folding, the boat guy. Yeah. The the under yeah. under underwater search guy. The, the, if she's in there, I'll find her. That guy, yeah. Yeah, that guy, yeah. So the title of this video was I Found Nicola Bully. So it was it was quite a controversial discussion about him arguing that he found her, but the police didn't want that to be the case. So they said that they found her kind of thing. How true it is or not, I don't know. It's really interesting. But the, my point is the guy who did that video with Peter, and it was a studio thing, proper filmed thing. He he only had a, a couple of thousand subs, and he you know his videos were performing 100, 200 views normally, but that one video went viral, so it means absolutely nothing. If you have three million viewers, you could still go a video that performs average. So would he get would he get paid any money for that video? Do you think if he's monetized, which I forget the guy's name, but you have to meet a criteria to be monetized. So if you've got five hundred or something, you mentioned. So you, there's, you have to have a thousand subs and 4,000 watch hours over the last 365 days. So I worked so hard to get to that, right? Once I got there, I was like, oh, I've made it. I'm in the get money. The oh my God. <laughs> you have no. to have a really successful video to make anything. A couple, my most successful one was where I had David McKelvey on to talk about the Essex murders. That's probably just short of 60,000 total views. Off that video, I've probably made 50 quid. Is that all? But I think the point you're making there, and I think I've thought about this quite a lot over the years. The thing to do, of course, is to team together with a group of us, give up our jobs, Go for it for six months, nine months. Do it full time, hire out studios, do all the things you need to do. Put some, put loads of live shows together, get a couple of, um, sort of crime Connie type events as well. Yeah. You because know, look at, look at, um, someone like, um, David Swindle, you know, great guy, um, knows his stuff again, selling out places. You've got Colin Sutton now, haven't you? You've got Emma Kenny, you've got others as well. So the the, mar the market's there for it, but do you want to do this full-time? Do you want this to be your career? Then it comes back to what you were saying earlier about imposter syndrome. Why should anyone listen to you or I as opposed to David Swindle, for example? It's, it's interesting. And then 
But then again, look at the world of sport. Not necessarily the people that have been there and done it are maybe not always the best people to talk about something. So back to this entertainment against against facts stuff, I suppose. But I think there's a ton of stuff out there that hasn't been utilised yet. Um, like in the US, there's a huge, um, you probably know this better than I do, but there's a huge growing market about we shouldn't be making any podcast at all about crime until, unless we've got the okay from the families. And that's a real growing um, feeling out in the US. So I think there's a lot of things going on. It's, it's almost like trying to be ahead of the curve, isn't it? But I think if you wanted to do it full time, I think you'd have to give up your job and do all these things. But I don't think you could do it on your own. I think you'd have to, I think this is, this is why I initially, earlier this year, end of last year, joined a network for a few months. I thought they could give me that extra stuff. So they did some really good work with me on, on social media. They talked a good game about some, some, some potential shows and some other, some other bits, but it just didn't feel right for me in the end. So, so I left the network, you know, I wish them the best of luck and all the rest of it. But I think there's got on your own. I think it's hard to, it's hard now. And if you look at other podcasts that have come through, so, so I started 2016, they walk among us was there. Then quite a few others came through. Then in COVID lockdown, we saw the mass explosion, didn't we? You know, true crime and lettuce, wasn't it? True crime and a wet dishcloth, all that sort of stuff. But now people have got back to their real lives. A lot of them have gone. But what are we seeing coming through from independent podcasters now? I think we're seeing hardly any. And I think it's really hard to gain traction. So let's say somebody's trying to do something like you, I, or maybe Paul at True Crime Enthusiasts are doing. It's really hard for them, I think, to get an audience nowadays. And it's even more difficult because there are so many, if you look in the top 30 of any charts now, 20 of them will be big corporate multi-parters with huge marketing budgets. That's the way it strikes me that maybe the, maybe the market's going. Or is that because what the market's giving them? So I think it's difficult. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm not quite sure. The other thing maybe is to try and get into that market. I mean, Red Handed did one recently, didn't they? They did a multi-parter. But then again, they've got lots of support, lots of backing, so they're tremendously successful. And I get that as well. But I think you've almost got to take the chance if you want it to evolve to that next level. Otherwise, the danger is that we could be sitting here in 10 years' time, either having stopped or doing the same thing and just slowly getting less and less downloads as the big corporates flood the area. What do you think? I think you're probably correct. It's hard to relinquish control, first and foremost. But second of all, I've noticed a trend also where people are doing less episodic content, i.e. on an individual case for one episode. And I am seeing more series coming through. Even from independents coming through, they might do a six-part series on one case. That seems to be a bit of a trend at the moment that I've noticed. You mentioned talking to families and stuff and not releasing content without that. In theory, that's a great idea. And that in an ideal world, that's great. The danger with that from a consumer point of view is that there'd be less content. Because if you want to release an episode every week, it's just not feasible to be in touch with every single family member of every single case you want to cover. First of all, it wouldn't be respectful to say, right, I want to speak to you. I've got three days and I'm doing an episode. Bye-bye. I'll never speak to you again. That's that's horrible. And second of all, it, it can take a lot of... First of all, you've got to find out how to get in touch with these people. Second of all, you've got to discuss what your intentions are, that you're coming at it from the right place. I've just had a lad on called Ryan, Ryan Ogilvie, who's been speaking with the family of George Murdoch, you know, the Aberdeen taxi driver. And so he's been working with them and he was in touch with them since March. And in September, he released the first of his five-part new series about that case. So that's what, six months? It's not like he's got a new episode now since the last episode's come out. If he spoke to another family, that could be another six to 12 months, depending on the circumstances. So. No, I- I take it. And what we're, what we're putting out there isn't anything that isn't already covered in the media, is it? That's the important thing. As long as you reference everything, and this is why I try to remain objective as much as the information I've gathered and taking that 
as fact. Some of it will be wrong. There'll be some dates that are incorrect. They might say someone's 14 when they're 13, for example. They might get the school they've gone to wrong. You, you're limited to the sources you've got unless you can speak to a family member, which is really helpful. But, but yeah, as long as you're referencing things, I, I think people sometimes neglect that and don't take into consideration that what we do, in theory, anyone could do. Anyone could go online on a newspaper archive or on a website, a newspaper's articles, read it all, collate the information, write and record an episode. Anyone can do that. We're not making anything up if you come at it like we do. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's, we're telling, it's, it's all on the facts, isn't it? The facts are out there. It's, it's how you get hold of them, how you present them, which comes back again to this whole balance between ent- entertainment. True crime is, and people hate me for saying this, but it still is entertainment. It has to be. Think about think about all the crime shows on TV, the 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 non-fiction ones. What do they tend to have? They tend to have um an event will happen, and then there'll be the investigation, and then the jury in the end, the trial, and the right result, the wrong result, whatever. And that's true crime though, isn't it? That's, why do you think true crime is so has been so popular all through the ages? It's like non-fiction, but but real. It's 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 real. That's that's why we're so enamoured with it and so fascinated by it. And it's only, I think, since the internet that we suddenly realised, hold on, I'm not weird for liking true crime or being interested in true crime. You're weird because you don't like it. It's got all the human emotions. How can you not like that? If you could give someone who wants to start a podcast one key piece of advice, given the current climate, what would that be? probably don't bother in all honesty unless you've got something really different to do or say or you've got some backing because i don't know how you go ahead building your audience i really don't know how you do there's a really good guy that i'm sure you know as well um andy ogden he records a podcast called picture the scene fantastic podcast doing all the right things the quality of the podcast is so good it should be doing incredibly well yeah, I've done a done a recording, a couple of recordings with, with with them, but it's really, really hard to break through. And I think that's the same for any new podcast, unless you work with one of the big studios, or you're a celebrity. Um, as we see, <laughs> yeah. And what was the classic one? It was um, <laughs> was it Vanilla Ice did one on? Do you Vanilla Ice, the rapper about yeah, Sugar? Yeah. <laughs> he did one about Shogar but you couldn't make it I don't think it was a great success um, hard to see why and the casting was a bit, a bit I don't know whatever maybe he's really into horses who knows but unless you're a celebrity unless you've got back in behind you how do you find an audience? I wouldn't know what to do if I started tomorrow I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't I wouldn't it's just, really wouldn't. Ama- it's just amazing yeah, it, it it is flood and you, the charts, like you say, it's all studio backed, and it, it really. And I've got nothing against the Kardashians. I'm not a big reality show fan, but when she dropped in the because it's a Spotify backed produced show, I thought you're not in it for the right reasons, and it pissed me off that that stayed at number one for about three months because the reviews were terrible. You know, poor, poor host reading a poor script from someone who doesn't care about true crime. They just want a payday and they're trying to jump on the wave. And since it's dropped off, you've not heard from her since. So it just proves all the points. But that's always going to come in. You could have the best show possible, the best genuine audience listening to it, the clicks, the downloads, the reviews. You could have everything. But if they're producing a show, they're going to, Put that straight to number one, aren't they? They are. And then the other big thing that's lurking at the moment is subscription. So, oh dear, have you listened to a Wondery podcast recently? I mean, the production values are amazing, but I, I can't listen to all the ads. I can't listen to an ad every three minutes. So I, it just stops me even listening. So the other option is subscribing, isn't it? Is that that's them that, that, that now even they've restricted their back catalogue as well? Is that what's happening? Yeah, I've seen a lot of the reviews have been negative recently. Yeah, but that's that's... That, as I understand it, I'm no expert. That's the future of podcasting. So all our free content we're doing instead goes into a subscription model. But that's what a lot of the networks want. So if you join a network, 
let's say you, me, and Bethan and Mark are in a network. Somebody pays, I don't know, five pounds a month, let's say, and they would have access to the three of our podcasts and back catalogues. And I don't want to charge for my my work, but you can see why a lot of podcasters think, look, we put all this effort in, this time in, why are we not getting paid for it? It's and it's all it's it's all on the I mean if you look at like uh, Spotify at the moment, they've been making quite a few redundancies, I think, in their podcast area. And so I think the market, um, the whole podcast market is growing as I understand it, but the advertising isn't doing too well at the moment, same as TV. So how do all these podcasts out there who want to stay in the business, how do they sustain themselves? It's a real question, isn't it? I mean, you could go and do something else in your spare time and make more money than you make from podcasting if it was all about money, right? Do you think there's a concern because people like uh, Emily from Morbidology and they're right for a lot of these big shows, yeah? And I don't know if Emily was, but there's people who've written for Spotify shows who have been let go from those contracts. My concern would be if I was a a host or something and it and then it falls back on you and you've actually never done your own writing like you could get a ghostwriter that's fine I don't mind I don't have a problem with that I've done that myself sometimes but if 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 all those options were taken away from you because of redundancies because of a lack of availability and you've never done that yourself there's no there's nothing you can do but drop out of existence right what do they call it? Pod fade, don't they? Yeah. Pod yeah. fade. <laughs> but it comes back to why you're here. You're here, same as me, same as most people I know. We're not in it for the money. We're in it to tell exactly. the stories. Yeah. That's why we're here, isn't it? But that sort of comes back then to say that in theory, you can't necessarily have both. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, not a, it's it's not a conscience thing, but it's, it's, it's doing it for the right reason thing is probably the best way of, of wording it. But what if your numbers start declining now? What if you suddenly start seeing your list? Because there's so much competition with the big corporates. What if your numbers start drifting? Um, a lot of podcasts I speak to, they reckon their numbers are stagnating. Some are falling. In two years' time, would you still want to be doing the same if you were getting half the number of listeners? Probably not. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Because then that's when you would figure out if you are in it for the right reasons, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hmm. It's, it's interesting. Th- there are so many good people in the world of UK true crime podcasting. You know them, same as I do. They're really, really genuinely nice people doing things for the right reasons. It, I, I just always think we're missing an opportunity as a group to do things. You know, we've got CrimeCon, which does you know, a great job. Um what else are we doing as a group together to actually take control of our own, our own destinies really? Because we're all facing the same, all, except for red handed who've gone into the stratosphere. I get that. Except for them, I'd say you, I, and all the others are probably facing the same challenges. We've got similar ish. You know, I mentioned the differences like with murder mile, we've got similar ish audiences, but what are we doing to take control of our own destinies? I suppose is, one of the questions I would have, because if we don't, and it's back to our listeners, isn't it? If we don't, we will die. We will die and we will go. We can't carry on all of us forever doing this with less listeners and less incentive. Or maybe we can, who knows? Maybe I'll be picked up by, I'll be the new face of crime investigation. Next thing I'll be knowing, I'll be hosting the new series of Crime Watch in prime time and things might go through the wall. But Emily in Morbidology, you mentioned, prime example, She's got over 100,000 Facebook listeners and she's got a huge audience in the US. And she writes amazing books. She writes amazing scripts. Yeah, you know, real talent, real talent. But how, how do we potentially combine with Emily? I mean, we see her at CrimeCon where she's you know, really popular at CrimeCon. But otherwise, how do we combine to make us bigger than we are at the moment? I suppose there's some of the thoughts I've been thinking about. I suppose I've been thinking about it for the last four years and haven't really done anything about it, Stuart. So. <laughs> Do you think everyone wants that, though? Do you think some people are quite... They don't necessarily want to grow with other people. They'd rather just grow on their own. Is there a, 
a potential that they don't want to relinquish any of their growth potential by hooking up with other people and bringing people up with them. They'd rather do it on their own. Maybe, maybe, but it's back to the basic philosophy. I, I think just in life is that um, we can all win. It doesn't have to be one winner, one loser. So let's say you and I, for example, we decided that we wanted to get studio quality for our YouTube. It would make absolute sense for the two of us to get together, hire a studio, hire a part-time editor to come in and do us as and when. And we'd both win from that, wouldn't we? But I think as a community of UK true crime podcasters, I, I don't, I don't see too much of that stuff going on. And I, I don't quite know why, because everyone pretty much talks a lot to each other, gets on. You know, there's no idiots, are there, in our, in our world? They're nice people, genuinely nice people. I don't, I don't quite see it moving to the next level that I thought it would have done yet. Don't labour the point, but I think we have to relatively soon, or we risk just um, becoming irrelevant. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe we'll see. But we need to. Okay, that's cheerful thought, isn't it? We need to act (laughs) on it. We'll uh, we'll end it there, Adam. Again, I'm going to pinpoint people to your book, Gone Fishing: The Unsolved Crimes of Angus Sinclair. I'll put that in my description. But yeah, thanks for your time, and it's been nice to pick the brain of someone in the same field that's ultra successful so thank you no, it's been a pleasure and I think it's been quite an interesting conversation sure cool well I hope everyone listening has enjoyed it I'm sure most of my listeners are your listeners anyway but if you're not <laughs> go listen to UK True Crime Podcast <laughs>